And that's probably the best way to summarize my career. I started painting and drawing when I was a kid, and I never stopped. This is The Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Hailing from a family with a long history of artists, J.M. Blay seemed destined to enter the art world. As if predestined, once he started drawing, he never looked back. His love of art developed into a fascination with photography and movement. Unbeknownst to him, J.M. had stumbled into the world of motion design, and his quote-unquote weird fascination became the cornerstone of his career. JM's versatile, unpretentious approach to creative collaboration has served him well, leading to a 20 plus year career and collaborations on everything from film to music videos, working with major brands from around the globe, including Netflix, Adidas, Doritos, Paul McCartney, and Lady Gaga, among many others. In this candid conversation, JM shares insights into the world and history of motion design and how AI is disrupting the status quo. Along the way, he also shares valuable tips on working with difficult clients, staying creative, and finding a work-life balance. Here's our conversation with JM Blay. Where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Spain. My family is from Spain. I'm from like a few centuries back, so 100% Spanish. And when I was seven years old, I grew My father uh, had an opportunity to go to Mexico and we went as a family and we live in Mexico. And I grew up in Mexico from when I was seven years old to 13 years old. So Mexico is something big for me. It's part of my DNA, let's say. After that, with 13 years old, I came back here to Spain and I lived here in Spain till, I don't know, 30 something years old that I moved to London. And I lived in London for eight years, more or less. And a few years ago, I came back here to Spain again to live when did your love for art start? What Did it start before you were seven or did that kind of develop while you were in Mexico? The thing is like my father was an artist and my grandfather was an artist too. And the father of my grandfather and, you know, so it's a family tradition. My, my father tried to not to influence me about creating art or doing art at all because he knew it was complicated and, you know, and not an easy task. And all my life, I mean, since I was born, I've been surrounded by oil paintings, you know, the smell of all different chemicals, you know, sculptures. And the friends of my parents were, I don't know, sculptures, artists, you know, people from theater, from different arts. I imagine that that it was a big influence on me, right? And suddenly I started drawing and I never stopped. 
<laughs> to today. And that's probably the best way to summarize my career. I started painting and drawing when I was a kid and I never stopped. The thing that's interesting about you and your particular career is that, um, and not to say that art, artists aren't generally very well educated, but you have a lot of like formal education and training as part of your history. Was that something that you always wanted to pursue or did that some that is that something that developed out of your out of sort of necessity as you started to work in the industry well that's a really good question because to be honest with you you don't need anything to be an artist right in fact uh, some famous artists they were even i don't know junkies in new york like basquiat for example you know and you can be an artist and be really famous artists or whatever, just with no regular education, right? But uh, because I've been drawing my whole life and, I don't know, painting, doing sculpture, doing lots of different things uh, in the art world, at some point I realized people were really, let's say, were always judging what you were doing regarding your expertise, right? So at some point, people say, oh, yeah, but you did this, but you are not, you don't have a degree in fine arts, you know, <clears throat> or you did this, but nah, it's not the same. So I decided, okay, let's going to get all the papers in the world, you know, <laughs> to cover me because I know I'm right, but I need to prove it to everybody else. And I realized that in the, in the, in the office, it was really important to prove your point. You know, and people were always saying, oh, yeah, but I do have a degree in fine arts. I do have, you know, I did a course here. I did a course there. I say, OK, I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to finish it and I'm going to have my papers to prove it that my point is right. So when did you start your educational career? Was it after you had already started working in the industry? Kind of at the same time. The thing is, like, I started junior at the same time that I started working. I started uh working as a waiter in a in a restaurant and suddenly uh because be, the summer before i started uni right and suddenly i heard uh kind of a discussion between the let's say the artist that was uh decorating the restaurant because it was a mexican restaurant and it was full of color and paintings i mean you cannot believe everything was painted you know the, all the walls tables, you know, everything. And in the ceiling, they do have like sculptures and stuff. And the guy was saying stuff and I was saying, oh, he's not right. After a few weeks, I asked my boss, what, why would you were the other day speaking with this guy? No, he said, I said, that's not true, man. I'm started, I started just fine arts and at that, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And let's say six months later, I was in charge of decorating the the restaurant <laughs> probably because i was cheaper i'm pretty sure of that not because i was talented or whatever you know they saw the opportunity right <laughs> this kid that we're paying him peanuts so he can paint it for peanuts and it's what i did but for me it was a big deal because i was earning probably triple that i was earning before right and that's let's say that that was my first uh paid job as an artist right and it was huge because it was uh, uh it became being just two restaurants one in valencia where i am from and another one in madrid 
Uh, the owner is a very famous Spanish singer. And they opened another one in Barcelona. And I started doing the whole decoration. And I mean, it was really cool. And at the same time, I was uh, doing some commissions, especially portraits and some paintings and stuff. So it's how I started, you know, because I've been always thinking, okay, usually you have the choice, right? At some point is I want to choose between having a regular job and spending my free time learning, polishing my art or whatever, my designs or whatever, or what I did. Let's take the money first day, you know, doing the stuff that I'm doing, you know, and pursue my career, even if it's just decorating a Mexican restaurant. I don't mind. I prefer that, that being in an office, doing another stuff, you know, accounting or whatever, you know. So I always choose to use my skills to get money instead of just having a regular job that I think I never had in my life so far. <laughs> Clearly art and artistry runs in, in your family history, but at some point, I mean, and you know, your parents knowing how difficult it is to, you know, make a living being an artist, was there ever any conversations with your family about the choice and the path that you were taking? Being in this kind of profession is more of a life choice than choosing a profession, right? Because if you are working, I don't know, in whatever, I don't know, industry, you know, exports, whatever, it's not what defines you, right? But there are certain professions in life that they completely change your life. I don't know if you're in the army, if you're a doctor, if you are, I don't know, a policeman. They is it's a it's it's something that changes you you know it's a, a lifestyle more than a profession, so I choose that one and I I have no regrets about it. <laughs> Two questions. The first is, how did growing up and did growing up in Mexico during that sort of seminal period of of, of your life when you know you're starting to sort of develop um, your likes and your dislikes and starting to realize the things that, um, you know, you're really drawn to. How did being there with such a strong culture and so close to the U.S., how do you think that shaped the kind of artist that you are today? Oh, that was 100%. I mean, <clears throat> as Spain is a country, a really old country, we have lots of history. And we have like, I mean, since the beginning of humanity, there's been people here living and killing each other, right? But uh, in the 80s, where I was growing up, Spain, Italy, France, probably UK, were not as evolved as we are today, right? But Mexico in the 80s, believe it or not, it was super close to, to the US. And everything was like, uh, if you had it in the US, you had it in, the, in Mexico in, in next Monday, right? At that time in the 80s, it was one, two, three, four years to come from the U.S. to Spain, right? Or to Italy. So it was really good for me because I had the chance to understand as a kid and then as a, as a teenager, the Mexican culture, which is beautiful, beautiful in all the world. You cannot imagine how beautiful it is regarding whatever, you know, even I was uh, really into Mexican horror films, which are really good. I was really into the Lucha, 
I was really into lots of different things, Mexican artists and everything. And at the same time, when I was just watching telly, we had lots of different television channels, you know, which for me was normal, you know, having 25, 30 channels, you know. And I remember watching live when MTV was on. I remember that day with a neighbor. We were we were at his home. He has a cable, and we were watching MTV going live. Here in Spain, we had two channels. In the UK, I think they had three, you know, four. So imagine that I ha- I grow up as a kid watching cartoons in a specific cartoon channel, you know which nowadays is the usual thing. But when I was a kid, it was not. It was just in a few countries in the world. So I grew up with a big influence from the US, especially growing up with He-Man, Transformers, uh, Thundercats, all these shows that, I mean, blew my mind as a kid. And you mix everything in there. And this is, you know, what influenced me, a mixture of three cultures, Spain, Mexico, and the US. Going from there, I, when did film and motion become something that caught your attention? Because this is what you de- do now. You, I mean, you're still a, an artist. We had this conversation before, but when, when was film, when did film become sort of a, a thing for you? Well, film, I had a few memories when I was a kid, but I had one that it was a big impact for me as a kid. And it was going to the cinema to watch, uh, I don't, it was a Ray Harryhausen's uh, stop motion film that blew my mind. Literally, I started speaking only about that film and I spent days, you know, just annoying everybody in my family about that film. And since the beginning, films for me are like magic moments in my life that I achieve because they have the ability to change my mood to put me in the situation of the characters in the film and I really go into it right so films is something that it's been like all my life there you know I've been always amazed by that and uh, probably when I started high school is when I I mean I remember other kids having I don't know at that time, it was uh, the Trapper Keeper folders. I don't know if you know that ones, but <clears throat> in Mexico, they were really popular. And if you were the one, you had your Trapper Keeper. And I remember me, I mean, just buying magazines and just doing cutouts of the ILM logo, which is fucking weird, you know, for a teenager to have that. And for me, it was an obsession. I wanted to know how they made it. I wanted to do that. I started even filming and shooting my G.I. Joe's and my Playmobil, you know, doing stuff in stop motion really bad. I don't, I mean, my memory of that is is better that I don't have the tapes anymore, but in my mind, it was amazing. I'm I'm pretty sure it was rubbish, but I mean, it's been always an obsession to me. You know, I love film. I love audiovisuals and I love art. So. I don't know, at some point, everything came together because I was, uh, when I grew up, I started shooting weird things. I don't know, uh, corners of streets. Uh, I don't know, some dirt here, some funny reflections on the wall, some shadows, moving lights and that kind of stuff. And I thought I was crazy, 
But uh, in, at university, I had a, a teacher and he said, oh, this is motion design. I said, oh, fuck, that is what I do. Or as you know, I didn't know the name because I mean, in the nineties, it was nothing as today. It was nobody there. It was, well, the big names, but it was not as common as today. It was really specific thing. Just few people in the world were doing it. It was not like worldwide massive as is today, right? And it's been like a progression, you know, as I've been discovering stuff, I've been thinking, oh, I like this. I like that. But I, but movies in general is something that it's, it's part of me. You know, you were kind of doing motion graphics without even realizing that's what you were doing. For those that don't know exactly what motion graphics is, because I think it is kind of misunderstood, how would you describe motion graphics? Okay, that's a, it's a good, really good question. In fact, uh, I did a PhD on, on design, on the specialty of motion graphics. And this was a big, huge chapter of the, of the PhD dissertation, right? What is motion graphics? Because people, I do prefer to call it motion design. Because to me, it's design in motion, period. Whatever you think is design, you move it, that's motion design, <laughs> right? <clears throat> Which is like, you know, you, it can be live action, it can be 3D, it can be just plain 2D, it can be just a text on a screen, but it can be without text. So it's a mixture of typography, filmmaking, design, photography, all combined and together, you know? And like you say, there's been a sort of a, um, a a real boom in motion design over the last, you know, 20 years. But I mean, there that motion design's always kind of been around too, right? I mean, you look at some of like the opening film titles are kind of the thing that that's come to mind to me when you think of like Saul Bass. That's what he was doing, right? Yeah, in fact, even before that, I mean, motion design, it's been among us since the beginning of cinema. I mean, at the same time that some people were doing, I don't know, some kind of weird silent movies, some other people were using the same cameras to shoot strange, you know, weird stuff. I don't know, like the artist Moholy Nagy, for example, or people in the in the, the German avant-garde, you know, like they were experimenting with film. And at that time, they were four crazy guys in a room you know doing weird things and now we see that and it's like oh my god you know what you were doing was amazing at that time so it's been like since the beginning Saul Bass was probably the first one that was recognized as an artist to the level to put his name on the main titles you know but if you remember I don't know Metropolis the film the Fritz Lang film, the beginning, the letters of Metropolis, that's fucking amazing. You know, that's motion design, pure motion design, and it's from the 20s. So, you know, it's been like forever here since, since the beginning of cinema, it's been with us. But with time and because we evolve as a society and we evolve as a profession, people started looking back to, to, to see, okay, somebody did this before I did it. So let's take a look back. And usually people all, always stopped in Saul Bass, you know, because it's like the 
first star, you know, the first one that was, oh, Mr. Saul Bass, which I love what he did, don't get me wrong. But before him, there were a lot of other designers, you know, doing stuff and people which they being uncredited like forever. And some of them, even if you start researching as I did, it's really complicated even to know who they were, you know, because people didn't care, you know, they were not important. This, they were putting just fucking letters here, there, you know, so it was no important, but now you see it and it's like, oh my God, who did this, you know? And Saul Bass was, let's say, the first famous person, you know, uh, with Maurice Binder and another Pablo Ferro and other great artists. But when this kind of situation that we have now started, it was in the late 90s, like around 1996 or something like that, 95, is when the digital desktop revolution started when people was able to install a software in a machine and do work on a, on, a, on a computer at home. Before that, it was either you have a huge computer, you know, which I don't know, because Soulbus is it's, uh, really famous, but all the graphics that he did for Vertigo, for, for example, it was not him. It was another guy who did the graphics and with a machine which if you see the pictures, it was a huge machine. So nobody had that. So it was more like super uh, technological advancements for the time, right? But in the 90s, suddenly you were able to put Photoshop in your machine or Illustrator or After Effects. And that is the point where everything started, you know, especially with Kyle Cooper, which it was the big, big main name after Saul Bass, it's been lots of them, you know, but he was like the one that catched all the media attention and it started like a new revolution, a digital revolution. And he started this and it's been like nonstop since today. I don't know, look at people and what he did, you know, at Christie's or I'm happy for him. And I'm super happy that he put our profession to the level of we're an artists and we are not ashamed of what we do, which is something that I've seen in the past. You know, a lot of people like, oh, I do motion design, like <clears throat> there is nothing or whatever. And no, no, man, you can be proud of what you do. And I was going to ask about Kyle Cooper, because one of the things that, you know, as somebody that watches a lot of film, I rem I clearly remember when Seven came out and it was kind of like, what is this opening sequence? What is happening here? This is different than anything we've seen in the last 20 years. It kind of felt like it was new and fresh. But I mean, he was uh, a great influence of yours, I know, on your PhD. And like you mentioned, he kind of brought in, he ushered in the second wave of motion design. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, your experience working with him and how the rise of motion design kind of influenced, you know, the work that you do today as well? The funny thing is, well, my PhD is about Kyle Cooper's work on the titles of Seven, because PhDs usually are about a minor, super specific stuff in the world. And from there, you open, 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 and you write a book and everything, right? So my specific thing was the titles of seven. And what is, what is for me the most, <clears throat> let's say, interesting thing is that 
the titles of seven are considered the piece that started the digital revolution and they were not they were not created with a computer so that's the good thing about it and what i love the most right they look like they were created with a computer or whatever and it was filmmaking pure filmmaking you know an experimentation with the typography and everything and it's, uh, I mean, Kyle Cooper, it's, 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 it's a master, you know, it, 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 he influenced, I don't know, probably my generation, I mean, for sure, and probably more generations just um, after mine, you know, like young people, but not nowadays, the kids that they are in the 20s now, some of them, they, they don't know who Kyle Cooper was. I've seen that, you know working with young kids. Kai Cooper, I don't know who he was. They know uh, Ashthorpe, they know people, they know different people. But Ashthorpe, for example, he worked at Prolog Films, he was influenced by Kyle Cooper. So it's like a chain, right? Uh, long story short, I went to LA uh, because Kyle Cooper supported my PhD, right? And he opened the doors of Prolog Films for me. And he, you know, he was super kind. I mean, I uh, I cannot say thank you anymore, you know, that because it was an inflection point in my life. Because imagine just trying to get into a profession and being able to speak to whoever you think is the best in the world openly questions about what you think, you know, <laughs> and what is this and what is that and what is that and what is this and why this and why that. And for me, it was amazing when I went to LA. I also had the opportunity to contact another bunch of professionals, which I admire like a lot. For example, Garson Jew from Yuko. He's a god of, of motion design as well, you know. And he was, they are friends, Kyle Cooper and Garson Jew. They studied together at jail, which is funny because if you start researching, you see that jail, the jail program on design at, that, at the time Kyle Cooper and Garson Jew were studying. It was super good, you know, lots of professionals came. So it's always like a wheel, you know, somebody learns something, teaches somebody that somebody goes and do something. And, you know, it's like a wheel. And I mean, Kyle Cooper's work has been a big, huge influence in my life, to be honest. I mean, it's what can I say? I grew up watching what he was doing and it was oh my god <laughs> for you having worked so closely with him and knowing so much about him and his career what was the thing that you learned from working with him that was the most surprising to you the thing is like i just work once for him you know as a professional you know and it was not it was just a few years ago I, in the past, I never worked with him or for him or whatever. I was just a guy, a quirky guy, you know, who was asking weird questions all the time, you know, and writing emails. And that oh, I also went there and I spent a, a month in LA just going and interviewing everybody. And what it surprised me, I don't know what to say because... He is, uh, is different. I can say that, you know, there are people in this world that you meet and they are different. You know, he's really different in the good way, you know, because of the work that he did. And is 
kind of, it's been complicated for me communication sometimes with him, even if I know him for years and years. But at the same time, he's been always super cool and, you know, super kind with me, you know. So what can I say? I don't know. Surprise me. To be honest, there is no specific thing that surprised me and say, oh, whatever. You know, the only thing it was really cool to work uh, for him, like a few years ago, I had the opportunity for the first time. You know, I was I, at, at that time, I had like lots of experience directing projects for huge companies and that. But it was always in my mind, oh, I want to work with Kyle Cooper. You know what I mean? <laughs> always back there. Yeah. You mentioned that, you know, you worked in London for a period of time and then you went back to Valencia. Um, When did you launch your studio? Were you working sort of like freelance before then or were you working for some companies? Walk us through sort of the 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 evolution of your career from you know uh, you do all of the studying you're working at the same time and you're working on various projects when do you decide to to launch um blast studios the thing is like i've been working more than 25 years right now so i started as i was saying just doing sculptures paintings and stuff and at some point i ended up working in the cinema industry, doing animatronics, weird things. Suddenly, I don't know, I was doing uh, some stenography. And from there, I suddenly appeared being the creative director of a VFX company. Okay. I stayed there, there for probably a year or something like that. Then I moved to, to advertising and I was the creative director of a really well-known um internet advertising company in Spain uh, for a year. And after a year, I started my own studio here, like 20 years ago. (laughs) And I started doing lots of of websites and I wanted to do motion, right? And it, it was a small studio. We were just five people here working. And I suddenly realized that studio was something not made for me because I was in charge of paying the salary of people, you know, trying to catch clients, trying to keep the wheel rolling, you know, everything. And at, at some point I said, oh man, this is enough for me. So I closed the studio. I spent six months finishing my PhD. And when I finished that, I moved to London. So I arrived uh, to London and I started, my idea was to to find a a job in a company, right? And the first opportunity that I had, it was for for freelancing. So, and the first client was NBC Universal. And I say, what the fuck, man? (laughs) So my first client is gonna be NBC Universal. And at that time it was really easy to do business in England. I think now it is a little bit more complicated, but still very easy. So it was just paying a small amount of money to become a, a, a freelancer. And I started freelancing and I finished that, that job. And because when I arrived to London, I was, I mean, I knew nobody, right? So I was by myself. So I wrote probably a couple of hundred emails in three days. And suddenly some of the emails started replying to me and they offered me, you know, doing freelance work. And I started uh, as a motion designer, playing pure motion designer at that time in the industry, probably today is the same. Motion designer is like 
you do your the stuff that somebody else thought you know so some creative director have uh, an idea and they just develop the idea and ends up just being a piece of paper for you to animate from scratch so i started doing that for a few years and suddenly i started being art director suddenly i was directing projects and being creative director and i work for companies like mpc the mill um spot uh, Nexus, uh, I don't know, lots of, of different companies. And at some point, I was just directing projects uh, for companies as a freelancer, as an independent director. And they usually call me to direct something for them. And first day, usually was I arrive to the company, they say, this is the project, how many people do you need, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I need three people, five, seven, 20, whatever. And they say, always it was the same. Oh, right now our team is really busy. That's why we called you. So do you have, do you know anybody that we can hire? So I started building my own teams. And after three or four times, I said, man, this is a business model, you know, because I can just be a company. <laughs> you know, what's the difference? You know, I am in charge of everything here, you know, hiring the people, managing the people, but it's not an internal team. So it gave me the idea to start doing it by myself. And I was, uh, I, my daughter was born in London and she had two years old and I was working remotely. My wife was working remotely. This was way, way before the pandemic, right? Nobody, it was not fancy or whatever, you know, it was weird. But for me, it was amazing. And we decided to come back to Valencia. And I started my company here because I thought it was the same, what I was doing there. And yes, it's exactly what I've been doing. <laughs> you talk a little bit about the fact that you were already working remotely long before the pandemic started, which has clearly given you a lot of freedom and a lot of opportunity to set up the, the life that you want in a way that you want. How has, how did the pandemic and sort of that shift on a larger basis for the entire industry has now mostly shifted to some sort of hybrid model or fully uh, remote model. Has that change for the industry as a whole affected you in any way, considering you've been doing this for so long? I don't know if it, if it well, the, the reality, the only good thing that it happened because of the pandemic is I stopped uh, traveling which it was amazing because you cannot believe how stubborn is people to see your face face to face for a 30 minutes meeting. You need to take three planes to stay two nights in a hotel just to meet a person 30 minutes and then come back home. And you say, man, there is some meeting, you know, there is, you know, lots of different platforms. We can have a, video chat and it's going to be the same. No, it's not this always. And they were always thinking about, I don't know, the soul of the face-to-face. -face. And I said, yeah, whatever, man. I mean, it's, this is a pain in the ass for everybody, you know? <laughs> and that's the only good thing <clears throat> that happened to me because of the pandemic. And the other good thing for me was that I had everything set up when pandemic came. So I was working from home. I had everything set up here and people nowadays, I mean, I've been, I've been always thinking that it was sometimes stupid to go to the, to the office, 
you know, especially if you were doing something really specific and you were doing their <clears throat> commuting from one, one hour, you know, into the, into the tube, you know, going to work another hour, coming back home, just having lunch, you know, wherever place, you know, and I was always thinking, oh man, this is not right, you know, because I, sometimes it's important that's, it's okay. I mean, I can feel it that no, because if we have a meeting, man, I have amazing meetings, just web, you know, online meetings and people can talk, you know, and we can speak and share ideas and you can organize and all the work that I've been doing with Blaze Studio, it's been remote. So I work from home. 100%. And I love to work from home. I don't like to go to an office. I don't want to rent a co-working space. I hate it. I don't want to go out of my house if I don't want to. You know, that's the point. <clears throat> and I've been doing lots of different projects. And always I had meetings, even with people that were at some, sometimes in my same city. You know, because I one guy that usually works for me during a period of life, he was living here like, I don't know, 20 minutes walking from my house and we never went to, you know, <laughs> to see each other apart from, oh, let's have a coffee. But, you know, not from work. Yeah, just socializing in person, work online. You've worked at, like you mentioned, you've worked at various um, parts of sort of like the 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 production line of motion design you know from you know just animating work that people give you to working as a creative director one of the things that we hear a lot or that i hear a lot from artists is the difficulty of taking something that somebody else has created and working it for the client but keeping your artistic integrity as uh, even if you all you're doing is the animation part yeah i i don't think i have that I don't have artistic integrity or whatever, do you know? I don't I don't buy it. I don't buy it. <laughs> of course I do have like but it's not like artistic integrity. I mean, what I feel stupid is that somebody has a stubborn idea and is like writing stone or something like say, man, we can change everything, you know. I mean, we're not doing surgery here. I mean, we're not saving people lives, you know, because people sometimes, especially creative directors, they think, no, no, this is my vision because whatever is, man, this is bullshit. You know, your vision is bullshit, you know, as mine it is, you know, let's do it as easy as possible. Make happy everybody here and let's forget about your vision. Nobody knows who you are. I mean, nobody knows who we are, you know, be, be realistic, man. Nobody says, oh, check the creative director of whatever. Nobody says that ever. You know, we are nobodies, you know? And our artistic vision is bullshit. You know, you have a project, you have a client, and the client's vision is what is important, you know, to me, because I always say, I, I used to teach a lot. And I always said to my students, you know who is the boss always? No, the one who pays. Who's paying you? That's your boss. Don't forget that ever, you know, if they have a vision, just follow that vision. You know what it it's, it's been for me complicated is when you see, I don't know, let's say that we have storyboard and you have six shots and 
three of them are really complicated to do. And there is no reason for those shots to be done in that specific way. And that's why I started, you know, going to art direction, direction, creative direction, because I realized that when people can save money is when having the ideas. Because usually in this industry, uh, people start thinking about concepts out from nowhere. You know, people that only uses, I don't know, uh, PowerPoint, you know, they start thinking, oh, I would like to see a liquid doing this and that. And then the liquid becomes, and on camera, you pan back the camera and this, that liquid say, man, 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 that's super cool. But what if we split the shot in three different shots? It's going to be cheaper, easier to do. It's telling the same story. And they, what it pisses me off is, no, no, I had a vision. And it's like, okay, come on. I mean, you know what I mean, right? Especially on advertising, you know, even in film, you know, people that I've seen people like, no, no, this idea. And then you see the film and say, man, this is crap. <laughs> this film is crap. What about your... Well, yeah, well, well this was what I was going to ask because, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot about is, um, you know, working with clients and, and keeping the client happy. And as somebody that has so much experience and you clearly know, you know, how things can be done more efficiently, how do you have those conversations with those clients, especially those that, you know... Um, don't understand what you do and the work that they're asking for. Like they have this idea of what it's going to look like, but they don't understand that process of getting it there. So as somebody that, you know, works with clients all of the time, how do you, like, what are some practical tips and, and, and things that you do to communicate with those kinds? Some of them can be very, very difficult to deal with. I always try to, first thing, don't forget that we are always speaking with people right? Some people try to make gods, you know, like, oh, you're working, I don't know, let's say for Spielberg or wherever as, as he is a god made of gold or wherever. You cannot say that to Mr. Spielberg. Why not? I mean, he's a human. I'm a human. We have a problem. This problem is going to cost money. Just tell him, you know. But instead of that, I've seen that people doing films, advertising, video games, television, whatever, everybody has a private agenda. And that private agenda is what you always need. You need to try to find what is that private agenda. Let's imagine a creative director <clears throat> that is speaking with you and is telling you about the project. They had a small idea. You can write that idea in a small piece of paper. It's three sentences and it's a campaign or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And this idea is like, oh my God, it's like written in stone, right? This, oh, we cannot change a, a coma because we spent six months doing research and these three sentences is like, whatever, you know? And the private agenda of that guy or girl probably is, I don't want to be fired. I want my boss to believe that I am really good worker, that I want to my boss to think that because of me, this work is going to be cool. So if you know that agenda, you are you have a little advantage 
you know, because you can make him or her look like that or appear like that or whatever, but it's complicated. And at the end, it's like put in sync like 15 different agendas <laughs> apart from the film, the spot or whatever you are dealing with and people use this as an excuse, right? What it happens is they want to keep the jobs, you know, and they want to see their names on the screen or whatever, right? But that's the only, I, it's not advice, but it's try to find the, the real, you know, um, let's say profit that somebody wants to have in this specific project. I think that's very valuable information to be totally honest. Super important. Have you ever walked walked away from a job because you just couldn't deal with? I never did that even if I was it's something that it's it's a curse that I do have. I cannot quit. I mean if I committed to something and I said yes I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it till the end. You know, and I did that. <clears throat> what I've been trying to do is this last probably 10 years avoid work with working with people that I know as a fact how it's going to end. You know, that's the only thing I've been doing lately is trying to avoid, even if I have nothing to do, you know, I prefer to do nothing and earn zero during a month than spend a month in hell because it's in hell you know, <clears throat> trying to finish something for somebody. What does your day, your typical day look like, your typical day of work? Oof, I don't think there is a typical day in my life. The only thing that is always the same is I woke up and I take my daughter to the bus to go to school. I came home. I do whatever. Then I cook um, lunch. Then I do whatever. And then either I go to do some exercise or I do nothing here with my daughter and my wife. Everything in the middle is something random. In the evenings, you do stuff that is not work-related. I assume that that's how you unwind. How important is it to have that time to not be in a sort of creative mental state? Uh, I mean, the thing is like, you need to always check your priorities in life, right? It was there was a time where I thought being creative it was everything in life. So I remember in my twenties, probably my my whole twenties, it was like, oh my god, I need to do this. I was always thinking of projects, and I take a look back and I produce crap. So. Suddenly, I decided, man, if I'm going to produce crap, just let's just get a life, you know, <laughs> start having friends, you know, do what regular people do. And at some point, I said, okay, probably I can quit my job and be as happy as I am now. So I managed to move from working 24 7 to work less and less and less and less. And it was a paradox. I started earning more and more and more and more. So I was working less and earning more. And at some point I said, man, probably that's the recipe, <laughs> you know? And nowadays <clears throat> what I do, that's the main reason why I started my own business. 
I don't want to be famous. I don't want to have a huge company. I have the size of the company that I always wanted to achieve, which is one person, which is me. That's the whole company. I hire people in a project basis because what I do is tailor projects with tailored teams, which means that if I'm not working, my expenses are minimum. So I can take off a month if I want to, or two months or three months. And because of my small structure, I can do just one or two projects by year. And the rest of the time do my research about whatever crappy thing is my interest now. You know, I, now I'm with intellig uh, artificial intelligence. Before that, I was obsessed with another thing. I do martial arts. So I spend time practicing or whatever. And, you know, I'm spending time with, play. I play guitar, you know, I want to see a series or whatever. And I really enjoy my free time more than anything in life. And for me, money is the, the perfect uh, way to buy time. So that's how I balance, you know, my life. It's like, okay, I love to have money. Don't get me wrong. I love, I, if somebody can want to give me 20 million dollars, that's fine. You know, I can give you my bank account, you know, <laughs> you can put it there. I love money, but it's not going to be the pursuit of money is not going to be what I'm going to waste my life doing. I want to have enough money as I do to have a normal life. You know, I don't want luxuries. I am not uh, especially attracted for huge cars or mansions or whatever. Even I, I think I would be not happy living that kind of life. So I decided instead of that to buying time. That's not, you know, I, I think that that's a really wise way to, to, to live your life, but that's not something that you just come to, you know, overnight. How, when, like, how, how did you come to that realization that this is what you wanted, that you wanted just the freedom to be able to enjoy your life? It's it's been a process because as I was saying, I've been working really hard. I mean, I you cannot imagine how many hours I spend in an office working for no reason, even working sick in a, in in circumstances that other people will say, you know, fuck off, I'm going home. I stayed there, you know. I it, my record was three days working without a stop, you know, two nights completely working plus three days that was like what I was doing and at some point I said you know what is this for and when I moved to London I started uh, earning big money big money in my in my in the sense of before I was working here in Spain and then I went there and people say oh London is super expensive and I said okay it depends on how much you earn you know for me London was cheap it was a cheap city because I was earning big money. So I w was able to afford a cool house, you know, having dinners and, you know, lunch here and there, wherever I wanted, buying clothes, buying whatever, you know, in whatever place. So it was like the moment that I, when I started spending money like crazy, that I said, okay, what is this for? You know, I want to go home and watch a film. That's, what makes me happy, you know? And I realized that free time was the best thing ever. You know, some people is like, oh, if I, I don't know what I would do if I was not working. I say, oh man, I have a huge list. You know, I know exactly what I've been doing, you know? <laughs> How do you stay 
creative and and where does art fit into your life now outside of work well good question <clears throat> i don't know i mean as i said before for me being an artist or a designer is a way of living so it's the way you look at things is the way you think is the way you do your daily things in life is the way you approach to everything as a creative you're always gonna be watching i don't know you're walking on the street and people are just watching whatever you know and you're watching suddenly the sunset or the trees that has a weird shape or i don't know this kind of new shop that it's open that they put something here or this new logo that you see i mean it's a it's you cannot avoid watching that kind of stuff. You are influenced by everything, you know, in life. So life is the big influence, you know, it's everything can be an influence. Sometimes people think about, oh, how do you think about the solution of this project? I have no clue. I just spend time doing it. You know, it's a matter of time and effort. You know, at some point it's going to happen. As somebody that's been working in the industry and has seen a lot and a lot of changes over the last, you know, 30 years, what do you think is, and I think you may have touched on it already, but what do you think is the next sort of like revolution? Oh, we're living it. Come on. You want me to say it, right? Artificial intelligence. <laughs> how how was like how are you using it or are you using it? Artificial in intelligence. It's something that it has to be regulated, legislated, and controlled, as has been done with the internet. Right. First thing. Second thing uh, about copyright. I mean, you cannot use somebody else's work for whatever reasons, and if you use it, you pay it. Okay. Once I said that, I love artificial intelligence. Come on. Who cannot love that new tool? I mean, it's brilliant. It does like, I mean, now is the beginning because people also there, today there are a few kind of prototypes, you know, of people just speaking about in the industry about the artificial intelligence. First, they, I don't know who the fuck they think artificial intelligence is doing, but for them, is doing spots, films, and whatever, and it's not. I mean, come on. It's amazing, but it's not that amazing today. It's doing stuff, you know, but you cannot art direct, you know, like 100% something and create it in 4K and animation, eight sec eight, 12 seconds. Of, no, you cannot do that today. can be done. It, it will be, but not today. Then another kind of people that it has no soul or whatever crap they are saying, I mean, I, it reminds me a lot. There is a guy that I admire a lot, which is called Phil Tippett, which is a really, really famous uh, stop motion artist. And I love what, I mean, what he is, what he means for the industry, right? And I was watching a documentary and I remember especially at the moment he was doing Jurassic Park and it appeared ILM with the new computers and all the, the story that is behind that, right? And I remember him saying, at that time, I thought computers had no soul. 
And I say, oh man, this is exactly what people is saying about artificial intelligence today. You know, of course it has. So, I mean, it's a human who's the one who's going to use it. It's the one who's going to choose. Is the one who's going to say, this is good, this is not good. I think it's an amazing revolution. Come on. It has to be implemented inside of the softwares or creating or create new softwares for it. But it's amazing. And now and the other funny fact is humanity think, I mean, people outside our industry, they think, I mean, they, they've been thinking probably the last 30 years that Photoshop was doing what it started doing now. Come on. I remember people saying, oh, you can do that with Photoshop. I say, yeah, of course. And today, they, yesterday, they released the beta version that now you can do what the people were fucking thinking were doing 20, 30 years ago, right? So that's a misunderstanding. I don't know how or everything that is being you know, today that is happening with artificial intelligence. What I know is that, as I was saying, it needs to be regulated, legislated, because if not, I mean, it's like humanity has just discovered the knife. And the knife is a tool that is amazing. It was the beginning of people started living in communities and whatever, but it's the same thing that you can use to kill people. So the tool is not the problem, right? is who uses the tool and how the tool is being used. So, I mean, I love what is the horizon, what I see that is going to happen, you know, especially for concept art. That is something that I do a lot. You know, imagine if you can have 20 ideas in 20 seconds. Come on, that's amazing. What would you say or what advice would you have for anyone that's interested into getting into motion design? If you only, if you could only tell them one thing, what would that one piece of advice be? Work hard. That's the only thing. I mean, that's the only secret. I mean, people, especially my students during years and years, they came to class because I've been teaching in master's degrees, you know, in different universities, always postgraduated courses and stuff in UK, here in Spain. And they always, I don't know why, but they always think that we have secrets and we have a, an inside line of phone, you know, connecting all the industry between us. You know, don't tell anybody the secret, you know? And they think that, I mean, and it's, it's not, I mean, there, if, if it exists like that, never ever anybody told me, you know what I mean? <laughs> so my, my motto is work hard. You know, it's the same with artificial intelligence. Oh, it's, you're going to get out. I mean, you're not going to have many more jobs or whatever. Probably not in the way that I have now. It's going to be different, you know, but you need to adapt and keep working and being open to change. And But the only thing that is going to be constant is work, work and work and spend hours and hours just working. And that was our conversation with J.M. Blay. You can find out more about J.M. and his work at blay.info. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits by Michael Edlin. Editing and additional production support by Joshua Peterman. 
For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.